Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, and be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, we need to hear, we need to receive this charge that you have for us this morning to be watchful, to be courageous, and to be loving. We ask that your spirit would move among us and especially move in our hearts that we might be able to see what you would have. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Can I get an outline? Just bring an outline. You know, you'd think I'd know my outline, but um, that I wouldn't need this, but uh, (laughs) I'm just going to grab it anyhow. All right. Well, as I mentioned before we prayed, we've come to the end of our time here in 1 Corinthians. Um, You know, we titled this sermon series, Faithful in the Fire because of the challenges of the Corinthian church and the things that they faced. But little did we know how appropriate that title would be given all that has taken place in this year. 2020 has been a most difficult year. I mean, obviously, the coronavirus, global pandemic, that comes to mind first. But don't forget, before that, there were these devastating wildfires in Australia. Millions of acres burned. There's been racial tension and injustice. And don't forget the murder hornets. It's been a terrible year. And it's not over yet. We have a presidential election coming as well. And I've seen great faithfulness. This is what I want you to hear, though. I've seen great faithfulness and resiliency in so many of you. I just think that's a testament to God's common grace to us. He has made us to be a people who adapt quickly. But I would say more importantly, it's a testament to his saving grace that so many of you have adopted not only quickly, but you've adopted with love and with grace. So verse 13 and 14 today is, as you can see from our outline, is really where we're going to spend our time. And I've given you three points in the outline um, that we'll go through here to be vigilant, be courageous, and be loving. And honestly, in a year like 2020... Uh, Could there be a more appropriate call to action? 
You know, but before we dive in, I just I want to briefly go back to the church in Corinth and remind ourselves of the context of Paul's letter and their surrounding culture. Now, if you recall, they were buffeted by troubles from the outside and from the inside. There was outward persecution by the government, but a stealthier trouble for the church was the surrounding culture. The culture in Corinth valued status and achievement. It, it esteemed power and influence and recognition. The influence of the culture around the church, it, it ended up leading to a lot of disunity in the church at Corinth. It led to arrogance, people thinking they're better than others in the church. It led them to think wrongly about sexuality, some saying that sexuality, all sexuality, was bad, and others to tolerate, tolerate sexual sin between a man and his stepmother. And they were suing one another instead of handling family business within the family of God. People got drunk at the Lord's Supper, and some were gorging themselves and eating while others went hungry. Church meetings were completely disorganized with people speaking over each other, and it seems too much emphasis placed on speaking in tongues, but not enough emphasis on the interpretation of tongues. And let's face it. And I say this with all love for our brothers and sisters in the church in Corinth. The place was a hot mess. And while our church may not be as messy as Corinth, the fact is our culture isn't much different than Corinth. See, we swim in this cultural undertow that constantly pulls us out to sea. It tries to unmoor us from our faith in Jesus. During this season when we can't be together like normal, where social interaction is limited and distanced, one of my greatest concerns for our church is how the culture around us has been influencing us. Now, time and technology changes, but people are people. And the same sin patterns that beset people 2,000 years ago are the same as today. So I think it's safe to say that Paul's final charge in verses 13 and 14 are as applicable to us today as it was to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago. So let's turn to our outlines. That's the context. Well, let's look to point one in our outlines now. Let's talk about being vigilant. What does it mean to be vigilant? Paul says, be watchful, which means to be on the alert, to be aware, to give attention to. But, but there's also a sense in which this is not just a, a passive watching. One is actively on the lookout. One is vigilant for danger or for threats. You know, when we think of vigilance, images of sailors keeping the midwatch or soldiers holding the battle line over the course of a night, those things may come to your mind. But sometimes vigilance is more subtle than that. I think we're all familiar with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? I mean, these are the guys who, as exiles, brought to Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar's rule, and they would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. And even after he gave them a second chance, they would not. In fact, they said, O king, our God will save us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your image. I mean, that's the story that we all know from childhood, is it not? But, but I don't want you to miss what actually came before that story in the first chapter of Daniel. 
As youths, they refused to eat unclean food from the king's table. They did not want to violate the Lord's commands. They could have easily gone along with the flow, but they didn't. They were vigilant to guard the ways of God that God had entrusted to them, to eat the foods that he commanded them to eat. And so what can we learn then from this small example of vigilance, of what it looks like to be vigilant? What can we learn in our context today to be watchful, to be vigilant? Well, I've got three things for you. They all start with S. Satan, the Savior, and our souls. Satan, the Savior, and our souls. Well, let's first, let's look at Satan. You all know that we have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Let me just remind you, I know you know this, but I just want to remind you, you need to hear this. He wants to devour your family. He wants to devour your children. He wants to devour your spouse. If you're married, he wants to destroy your marriage. If you're single, he wants to destroy your purity. If you're getting aged and your body and your mind are failing you, he wants to devour your hope. Whatever your circumstances, he wants to devour you. Now, sometimes his attacks are a full frontal assault, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced with King Nebuchadnezzar in the golden image. But more than that, I think more often than that, Satan's attacks are indirect. See, here's what he does. He'll turn you inward on yourself so that you are mostly concerned for your wants, your desires, and your welfare. He'll take your God-given... Let me just give this... Here's a good example, I think. He'll take your God-given inclination for justice. God has given us where we have his image. We know we have a sense of what's fair and what's not fair, what's just and what's unjust. He'll take that sense... And he'll turn it into ungodly anger. He'll use it against you to fester inside you and make you bitter and angry. He'll say, you aren't being treated fairly. Does God really care about you? Wouldn't it be better to seek justice and retribution yourself? He'll take that hurt from your your coworker, your friend, your spouse, even your elder, and say, does God really want you to forgive Isn't it better to harbor some some resentment and get even? Think about that method of attack that Satan uses when he does that to us. Questioning God. Hopefully that sounds familiar because that's exactly what he did in the garden with Adam and Eve. Did he not? He said to them, did God really say? Did God really say? If you're familiar with judo, you'll know that it is a form of of martial arts that uses the opponent's energy against him. The opponent runs at me on the attack. I step aside and use his body weight to toss him to the ground. In the sense of using our own inclinations against us, Satan is a judo master. He really is. And so what must we do? We must be watchful. We must be aware of his lies. And this is really important, I think. 
We must know ourselves. Where am I weak? Where is he likely to use my inclinations against me? Is it lust? Is it money? Is it comfort? Is it approval from other people? Is it worry, anxiety? Is it anger? Or is it just bitter resignation that things are never going to change? That's where the adversary will attack. And we must be ever vigilant against his ways. Let me quote John Calvin here. He wrote, For as the warfare is incessant, the watching requires to be incessant too. So we need to keep our eyes out for Satan. We need to be watchful for Satan. But we also need to be vigilant for the Savior. For the Savior. Now in Matthew 25, in the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus' message is clear. Watch, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour when I will return. You know, we say Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We say Maranatha around here from time to time. But I get a feeling it's not like the church used to say it back in the 70s. All y'all that came out of the Jesus movement in the 60s were ready for Jesus to come back. You were expectant. The revival in the church was so real that the person of Jesus, his love, his compassion, his majesty, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection, it it all came so clearly into focus that his return seemed imminent. And the church expected it. Now, I would say a lot of great things have happened in the church since then. I mean, maybe foremost, there's been a recovery of of doctrine and solid Bible theology. But on the other hand, I think we've largely lost the expectation and the watching for Jesus' return. But what if all the garbage that's happened in 2020 is actually the beginning of a revival in God's church in his preparation for his return. What if we thought that way? Don't you want to be ready? How can we be vigilant? How can we be watching for Jesus' return? Well, 2 Peter 3 and verse 14 says it like this. Therefore, beloved, since you are watching for these, and when he Peter writes these, he's referring to the verses beforehand where it talks about how Jesus is going to return and uh, all of this earth is going to burn up. He says, be diligent, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So we can set the vigil awaiting for Jesus' return by being diligent to pursue Jesus. And that brings me to my last S under vigilant. Vigilant for Satan, for Jesus' return, for the Savior's return, and lastly, for our own souls. For our own souls. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? So we are shaped, as I said earlier, we are shaped and informed by many influences, not the least of which is our surrounding culture, as you all know. And we've talked about this already. To one degree or another, we are a product of our nature, our surrounding nature in in the culture. And Brother Bentley actually 
prayed this in the Lord's Supper meeting just an hour ago about how polarizing our culture is right now. I, I would say the spirit of this age is a particularly negative one. Now, you know, people have always had differences, and there's always been conflict. That's not new. But it feels like commonality and understanding between people who are different is largely gone. The spirit of this age is, is anger. It's, it's vilification. Painting the other side in, in broad categories that lack any kind of nuance at all. Let me give you some examples. You're a Republican? That means you're a gun-toting hater who wants to destroy gay people and send our country back to 1890. You're a Democrat? You're a baby-killing, family-hating communist who wants to outlaw all worship. You're white? You're a racist. You're a young black man wearing a hoodie? You are a threat to my safety. You think wearing a mask is good? You're a fearful ward of the state who's being conditioned for further subjugation. You think you shouldn't wear a mask? You're an unloving neighbor concerned only about making a statement. The spirit of this age says that if you are different than me, you are an existential threat to me. And therefore, I must eliminate you or I'm going to be eliminated. I must cancel you, to use a, a term that's not popular. But here's the thing, that's not new. The heart of unregenerate men is the same today as it was 2,000 years ago. Here, but here's what is new. Here's what is different about our age. Social media. Until social media, we haven't had the opportunity to vilify each other so easily and so publicly. Before social media, there was time to cool off collect ourselves. We had time to think before firing off that angry tweet or, or liking that post on Facebook. Before social media, we actually interacted with people face to face. That's part of the problem with this quarantine and COVID. We don't get to be with one another like we used to. And when you are face to face with your opponent, what happens? Your opponent is humanized, are they not? When you are face to face and you're talking to somebody, whether you consciously or unconsciously realize it, you see the imago Dei, you see the image of God in the person sitting across from you. Think of your neighbors. Just think about your relationship with, with your neighbors. No doubt, many of them think very differently than you. But you get along, or at least you try to get along, See, social media started with the goal of connecting family and friends. It really started out with noble purposes. But it has turned into a full-blown dumpster fire where virtual shouting matches and vilification of someone of a different persuasion is the norm. And if it was only confined to social media, I could stop there, but it's not. Cable news, both left and right, internet news, left and right, it's just an echo chamber, right? An echo chamber where when you say something, it's just repeated by somebody who thinks the same exact thing that you do. And you just keep shouting the same things at each other about how right you are and how wrong the other side is. 
This is, I just wish it wasn't true, but this is the spirit of the age. And it comes at us constantly, attacking our spirits, which, which have been transformed and are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. But we're impacted by these things, and we can't help not be. Let me just give you an example. After scrolling through my Twitter feed recently, I commented to Eliza that I often experience both the highs and the lows of emotions in the brief time that I look through my feed. <laughs> I laugh at the fools on the Darwin Award Twitter handle, nearly kill themselves, doing stupid stuff. And then 30 seconds later, I'm outraged by the lawlessness and anti-Americanism of Antifa that shows up on some of my news. We got to be honest, and I got to be honest with myself. These things can own us. They are addictive and can result in a misshapen and unbiblical perspective on the world. More importantly, they are. this is what I want you to hear. These things shape our spirit, whether we realize it or not, or whether we think they do or not, they do. And so this is my call this morning, to be vigilant about your soul as you take in social media and as you take in news from wherever you get it. I want to give you two positive steps that you can take to be vigilant. Number one, take a social media break. I mean, I'm not saying you've got to delete your Facebook app. I'm not saying you've got to delete Instagram and Twitter and all that. But just shut it down for a week, maybe a month, and see how you feel. See if you aren't less anxious. And I'm sure there's a number of you out there saying, hey, I never had it, so I feel great. But for those of you that do have it, see if you aren't less anxious and see if your mind isn't in a better place. And just like anything else, if we're going to take off, we need to put on, no? And so, number two, replace your intake of social media with intake of God's Word. Either read it or memorize it. If you want to memorize it, the best, and this is a tremendous tool, the best tool that I've come across is the Fighterverse app. Fighterverse app. I think it costs... Costs a few bucks, which I know is super weird when everything's free these days, but it's worth every penny. And my other suggestion is if you're going to read the Bible, go old school. Pick up the book. Seriously, pick up the book. Don't pick up your phone. I know that the phone is super convenient, and I know that if you're doing a reading plan on the Bible app, you can track your progress, and all that is tremendous. It's, I mean... Isn't it great that we have our Bible with us everywhere because we've got our phone with us everywhere? But at the same time, how often have you pulled out your phone? I'm going to read my scriptures today. Oh, wait, I've got a 20 unread emails, two calendar invites, seven notifications on Facebook. And before you realize it, you've answered all those little red bubbles instead of actually communing with the living God. So that's why I encourage you to pick up the actual Bible itself. So that wraps up my thoughts on vigilance. Let's move to what it means to be courageous. And as Paul says, we are to stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. I just love this call. 
Maybe it's the military guy in me. Maybe it's the football player in me, but I love it. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. We could sum up all these things by saying be courageous. Be courageous. Now, the call to courage isn't unique to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 5.1, in Philippians 1.27, in Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says the same thing. Stand firm in the faith. Paul knew, and here's the thing, this wasn't a do as I say, not as I do command. Paul knew what it meant to stand firm in the faith. We know of the persecutions, the beatings, the shipwrecks that Paul faced. And the call to courage, though, it wasn't unique to Paul. It goes all the way back to Joshua. Do you recall the nation of Israel standing on the banks of the Jordan about to cross into the promised land? And God commands them three times, be strong and courageous. Joshua 1, 6, 7, and 9. Be strong and courageous. And you know what's really interesting about that, guys? He doesn't say, Israel, I want you to try. Try to be. Give it your best. It's a command. It's not an aspiration. Be strong and courageous. So what is courage? Just a simple definition. Doing what you know you should do even when you are afraid. Courage, let me say it this way. Courage is not the absence of fear. I think any Medal of Honor winner would tell you that. It wasn't that I was unafraid. It's just that in spite of my fear, I did what I knew had to be done. And that's what courage is. Now, sometimes we get that last part wrong. That we think that because we're fearful that we shouldn't do something. We think that the way then to courage is to push those fears down and to puff ourselves up and move forward with bravado and ignore the fear, not acknowledge it. But this isn't real courage. That's actually counterfeit courage. Let me just share a story that you all know very well. We talked about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here's another one. David and Goliath, right? Goliath was nine feet tall, but he was braggadocious, was he not? And and puffed up. He talked a big game. I'll put down anybody that you bring out here. His courage was built upon his size and the fear that he knew he imparted in others. It was a counterfeit courage, though. It wasn't real courage. Now, let's contrast him to David. He really had no worldly reason to be courageous, did he? A boy, maybe he was a teenager. He was just a shepherd. He had none of Goliath's size or experience in war or in killing. But he had one thing Goliath did not have. Faith that God would come through. He believed that despite what fear he may have felt, that God would deliver him. And he kept entrusting himself to the Lord. And we need that kind of courage. We don't need to be like Goliath with counterfeit courage. We need real courage. We need to entrust ourselves to the Lord. So where do we need real courage today? Where do we need real courage? Well, I've got three more things for you. This time they start with D's. Last time was S's, now they're D's. Doctrine, discipline, and danger. 
We need courage in doctrine, courage in discipline, and courage in danger. On doctrine. We know that God's way has always been unpopular, but in our current age, there is reason, I think, to have some fear about the things that we believe. In particular, speaking out about God's design for men and women is increasingly unpopular and out of step with the surrounding culture. Someday, holding to the biblical teaching about sexual relationships may very well cause our church to be in hot water with our government. Now, I don't think that's likely anytime soon, but it is a possibility. And so, should something like that happen, we need courage to uphold what we know to be true even in the face of fear. We need courage to hold to what we know is true and right biblical doctrine. We need to be like Luther, Martin Luther, who was accused of heresy at the Deet of Worms. He did not know what his fate would be. The Roman Catholic Church had accused him of apostasy. And they wanted him to recant of the things that he had said about the Pope and about the church. But despite these things, he summoned his courage. And instead of recanting his faith, he said words that I know many of you know. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. That's the kind of courage that we need for our own doctrine, for our Bible. Courage doesn't stop there. We need to think about discipline as well. Now, I don't mean discipline in terms of raising children. I mean discipline in terms of self-discipline, self-discipline. For those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago at the Lord's Supper, or maybe it was last week, I forget, but uh, it was uh, the weekend after it was the weekend of the, the elder retreat, so two weeks ago, I guess. And on the morning of the elder retreat, my Bible reading plan actually had me in Psalm 133, which was, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's a blessing when brothers dwell in unity. And I thought, wow, that's kind of neat that I just so happened to read that piece of scripture on the morning that we have this elder retreat. Well, I had another just so happened moment this week. Um, it just so happened that, again, my Bible reading plan had me in Second Peter. And I want you to, to listen to what Peter has to say about self-discipline. This is from Second Peter, and it's chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, for the reason that God has saved you and given you the gift of faith, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Make every effort. He doesn't say, let go and let God. 
supplement the gift of faith that God has given you by making every effort. Now, this isn't about duty. Reading my Bible, prayer, gathering with the church. This is about making sure that you aren't ineffective in your faith. That's what he says in verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. He goes on to say that the reason we do this is that we wouldn't be ineffective in our faith, that we would be sure of our election and calling in Jesus. We need the courage to embrace life in Jesus. Not just duty, not just going through the motions. We need to embrace life in Jesus. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. But guess what? It's still a yoke. And we still must pull at it and work at it if we are to progress in him. So we need courage in our doctrine and our discipline, our self-discipline. We also just need courage and danger. Courage and danger. The time of, in this time of COVID, I would just say there are daily opportunities to act courageously. For those of you who are high risk at getting sick from COVID, or if you got sick, it could be really bad for you, I think courage looks potentially like restraining some of your activity, even when you really want to be completely reengaged. Back at church, back at homebrew, back to life as normal. For others of us, courage is actually the opposite. It is engaging with the world, despite our fear of getting sick. I'll just say that this is a highly personal and subjective matter. But whatever your situation, remember that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. He has called us to be strong and courageous, especially in a time of global pandemic. So we've looked at what it means to be vigilant. We've looked at what it means to be courageous. And now we come to Paul's last command in verse 14, to be loving. And Paul writes this, quite simply, let all that you do be done in love. I think John Calvin sums it up nicely. Love, as we think back to these previous commands, love is the rule in all of these commands. John MacArthur, I think, also provides some helpful context here. He says, these previous commands would actually be, be harsh and domineering, but love softens them and complements them. It keeps doctrine from being dogmatic and the right, and right living from becoming self-righteousness. So above all, above watchfulness and vigilance and courage and strength, love is what we need most. Indeed, the last command of Paul's final charge circles back to the surrounding text of this passage where we see a loving community. In verse 12, Paul relays that Apollos couldn't come, but he will when he can. In verses 15 and 16, Paul encourages the Corinthians to submit to Stephanus' household because they are faithful servants. In verses 17 and 18, Paul rejoices at the fellowship and refreshment he enjoys with Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. 
in verse 19 and 20, he sends greetings, just greeting after greeting and love after love from Aquila and Prisca and the different churches all around the Mediterranean with the love that they have for the church in Corinth. Now, if we at Orchard really want to be different, the elders have been talking about this, if we really want to offer the world something different, we need to reveal Jesus. It's our mission statement. That's who we are. We need to reveal Jesus in all that we do. And love is where it starts, loving one another. Love is, and love is most effective in the context of deep relationships. And so my final charge to you this morning, if you haven't already, you need to get connected with your brothers and sisters here at Orchard. I know you may have relationships in other places with believers, but here is where you need to invest in relationships. And if you aren't sure where to start, here are three options. Connecting women, the men's ministry that we're excited to be launching here, and home groups. Now, I'm a bit biased, but I think home groups are the best way to be uh, and to join in community here at Orchard. Okay, you guys have got to be tired of me talking about home groups about every time I get up here, right? Like, you know, it's kind of like I'm selling my own book and, you know, that kind of stuff. But here's the truth. It's like when I go to the pool with my kids, okay? They beg me to come to the pool with them. But I actually have no interest in going to the pool. I'm quite happy to just chill out at home or honestly do a lot of other things and go to the pool, okay? But I know what it means to my kids. I know what it means to them. So I go, and when we get there, they can't wait to get into the water. They jump in, and there's, they're having a blast. I, on the other hand, find a table and a chair and maybe another chair to put my feet up on, and I get out a book or read an article, and I'm feeling great right about the time when they come and beg me, Daddy, Daddy, won't you come and get in the pool with us? It's so much fun, please. And I relent once again, not because the water will refresh me or I enjoy swimming. As I said, I don't. But I relent because I know it would be good for my kids. And past experience has shown me that it actually will be good for my soul as well. Now, could I get by without going to the pool and getting in the water? Absolutely. I'd feel fine. I'd be totally okay. But, but. I would miss out on all the good that comes with joining my kids at the pool and getting in the water with them. But forget about me. It does so much good for my kids when I come. When I meet them at their level and do the things they love to do, it fills them up. It fills their tank. And that's Sometimes I feel like that when I'm asking folks to come to home group. It's the same with relationships here at Orchard. Will your life be wrecked if you aren't in relationships with others? No. Will you be abandoned by the church if you aren't in a home group? Of course not. Of course not. But will you be missing out on the full 
blessing that God provides when we engage fully in our community? Yes, I think you will. Furthermore, will you be holding back the blessing that your participation will bring to others? 100% yes. So let me make it more personal. Will your witness of Jesus' transformation in your life be incomplete without this type of commitment and relationship? I think the answer is yes. He calls us to these kinds of relationships. And, and, and here's another thing. We want to be different, right? We want to create a compelling community. Something's different about Orchard. I want to be there. The secular world around us says that you, your time, your choices, your individual rights are supreme and that anything that infringes upon them is to be rejected. They want the kingdom without the king. But if we want to provide something different than what the secular world has to offer, we have to refute the claim that happiness is through autonomy and independence and choice. One of the best ways to do that is through commitment of your time, energy, and resources to relationships at Orchard. It's through genuine Christian love that we will be different. It takes time. It takes commitment. It requires sacrifice. It requires self-denial. It requires reprioritization. But isn't that what love is? Isn't it all of those things? If we say we want to be like Jesus, this is what it looks like. If we want to offer a compelling vision to unbelievers or immature believers, this is what it looks like. If we want to reveal Jesus in all we do, it starts with love. We wrap up this morning and we consider Paul's final charge to be vigilant, to be courageous, and to be loving. You may be experiencing some motivation. I hope you're experiencing some motivation to charge back into the week. I'm going to delete my Facebook account. I'm going to read the Bible this week. It's kind of like a team before a game. The coach has said a few words to get everyone excited and motivated, and the team is ready to go. But five minutes into the 60-minute game, very few will be able to recall what the coach said. Or in this case, what the preacher said. You see, there's a danger in a message like this. If taken out of context, all you have this morning is a bunch of self-help, pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps garbage. Absolute rubbish. Even my words about community, without the ultimate context, they fall short. So let me give you one last thing, one last person, that will sustain us and lead us to change long after the words of the sermon are gone. Of course, it's Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate context for everything we've said this morning. I just want to draw your attention to how Paul closes his letter, a letter where he strongly rebuked, a letter where he also strongly encouraged, and where he finished with this charge. This is what he says in verse 23 and 24, but in particular, I want to draw your attention to 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's what I want to end with. The grace of Jesus be with you. Our motivation and resolve to vigilance will falter. 
But Jesus is ever vigilant, keeping watch over your soul. When you sleep, he is awake. When you fail, he succeeds. The courage, parents, the courage and love to patiently discipline your child again for the same thing you just disciplined them for 20 minutes ago, that's going to fail you. But God's love for you is not dependent on how well you love your child. The courage to face another day with a long-term disease like cancer or MS or any number of life-altering diseases, that kind of courage could feel like a vapor. Here for a moment and gone the next. But Jesus is the anti-vapor. He never leaves you. He is with you. You try to love others, but fail again and again and again, finding that despite your best intentions, you aren't patient or kind. You are envious and boastful. You're rude. You're arrogant, easily irritated, and insist on your own way. And you feel defeated by your sin. Even the desire to be near to God may fail you. But that doesn't change how he feels about you. In fact, it's in your weakest moment that Jesus most desperately wants to be with you. He said, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus has shown us thus in the cross. In our weakness, he came for us to save us. But the work of the cross doesn't end with salvation. That's only the beginning. Jesus' heart for his people continues in our weaknesses. Even as we've already been saved, he will help you be vigilant, courageous, and loving. And when you fail, he will set you on the rock and give you another chance. And when you can't stand, he'll carry you. So I say to you again, be vigilant, be courageous, be loving. But most of all, I say to you this, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Please stand with me in prayer. Lord God, we are humbled to have a Savior like Jesus. We do not deserve him. We are so thankful for him that we get to enjoy his grace and that it carries us day to day. God, we want to be vigilant. We want to be courageous. We want to be loving for you and for your glory and for your kingdom. But we know that we're not perfect and will fall short. And so in those moments, we cry out in Jesus' name. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.